What's up, everybody? I hope everyone had a great weekend and an opportunity to be in church or attend church, you know, to worship and grow in your faith and grow with other believers. I pray that as we continue on this journey through the book of Revelation, that God would would guide it and deliver the message that each of you need to hear according to where you are in your faith. At the beginning of this book, John writes that the reader or sharer of this book or prophecy, as well as the listener, will be blessed by it. And that is my desire today and each day going forward as we continue uh, with this going through this book of Revelation. And as we continue today with the second half of chapter 1, which is where you begin to see the beginning of John's vision. This is where he sees Christ. And so today we pick up with Revelation 1.9. John states that he was on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there by the Romans because of his faith. You know, because of his faith in Jesus. Remember, they tried to kill him, but God wasn't having that. So they exiled him instead. Then John writes that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You know, and it could have been, uh, you know, a Sunday, which is often referred to by many as the Lord's day. But the phrase Lord's day in the Greek is used as an adjective, thus implying a lordy day, so to speak, or a day that he was having an an especially deep spirit-filled, you know, time, you know, in prayer and worship and whatnot. So John hears a loud voice behind him like that of a trumpet. Can you imagine being deep in prayer and then someone behind you blows a trumpet? You would probably have a heart attack or maybe think it's the rapture. Either way, it's it had to have startled him to say the least. To, to hear a voice speaking with, the, with that kind of volume, the volume and commanding presence of a trumpet, I, I kind of envision, you know, the voice of James Earl Jones, you know, speaking. But anyway, if, if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. So anyways, the voice tells him to write what he is about to see on a scroll and send it to the seven churches, um, which were the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So remember, these are the churches chosen to represent all the churches, and they are the churches that would serve as a conduit for this prophecy, for this book. You know, their locations were all on major trade routes that would have made it easier to spread the word to other churches and then, of course, out into the, to the world. Also, Patmos was off the coast of modern-day Turkey where these seven uh, cities or churches were located. So, as we go through the message that, that were written specifically, you know, there were messages written specifically to each of the, of the churches, but you will see how each message applies to the churches and to the church throughout history. You know, the, the messages and the, what you can gain and learn from them to each, what is written to each of the seven churches, which you'll see in the coming episodes, you know, they're, they're meant for, all, for us through all, all throughout history for us to learn from. So not just the seven churches that are mentioned here, they're, they're really messages for everybody. Okay, now the cool part, 
John turns around at this point to see who is talking to him, and he sees seven golden lampstands, and in the middle is one like the Son of Man. Now, we'll come back to the seven golden lampstands at the end of today's podcast to clarify what that is. Referring, to, you know, so anyway, he sees someone in the middle of them referring to, you know, Jesus. You know, he says, like the Son of Man. So now you might notice that he says, like the Son of Man. So although this was a description used in Scripture to refer to Jesus, it simply means a figure that looked human, but not quite. You know, then he describes the person and you understand the not quite part when he starts describing him. He says that the person was dressed in a robe that went down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is the the human part, okay? And the description indicates a person of authority like a priest or king, which would make sense because Jesus is the high priest and the king of kings. Hebrews 4, 14 through 15 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's our Jesus. The high priest, he serves as the mediator between us and the Father and is the reason we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. He is also referred to as the King of Kings, referring to his absolute sovereignty and rule over all creation, which the world will witness during the thousand-year reign. That will come at the end of the tribulation period, but more on that down the road. We have a long way to go before we get there. So, the Romans may have mocked him when they, when they referred to him as the king of the Jews, but Jesus will return and establish his reign as king over all of the world, and the world will truly be at peace. Now, John goes on to describe the not-so-human part um, when he sees Jesus. In verse 14 and 15, he says, The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. John now sees Jesus in his true glorious form. You know, what they saw when Jesus walked among them was very different. Jesus had to cover or hide his true form from man because man would have known who he was or would have been terrified you know not to mention they would have been able to they wouldn't have been able to stand in his presence you know really because if you remember in the garden when they um, came to arrest Jesus and they had like a thousand temple guards that came you know to arrest Jesus in the gospel of John it records that Jesus revealed you know who he was for a moment when he said I am that I am when he when he re- revealed who he was for that moment he it says that he laid out a thousand guards like all of them just fell back when he revealed his true glory even for a moment um so anyway but John is allowed to witness it and write it down in Galatians 3:16 Paul reminds us though that every detail in scripture has meaning and significance and that holds true here 
Scripture validates Scripture and confirms its truth. When John describes Jesus having hair like wool of white as snow, it is it is intentional because it reminds us that Jesus is the Ancient of Days that Daniel talks about. Described in Daniel's vision of the reign of Christ, referring to the thousand-year reign, Daniel 7 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, um, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. You see, John is describing Jesus in a way that would directly connect it with the description mentioned, you know, in the Old Testament, prophets like Daniel, by prophets like Daniel. The whiteness of his hair speaks of his purity and holiness, unstained by sin. Then it says that his eyes were like blazing fire, depicting that Jesus is all is the all-seeing, all-knowing judge who searches the thoughts and hearts of man. Nothing escapes him. He judges righteously and without partiality. Also, biblically speaking, fire tends to represent the presence of God, like when God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, or when he appeared as a pillar of fire to lead the Israelites through the wilderness, or when the tongues of fire came at Pentecost in the form of the Holy Spirit, and again representing the presence of God. Daniel refers to the throne of Jesus like fire. Fire is used symbolically all throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. That's talking about at the end. Um, you know, there's the, there's the judgment, which we'll get to later, but our works will be put through the fire too. And all of our works will be put through the fire, and it will consume all things done with the wrong motives or heart. It will judge the quality of our deeds as believers. So you can now see the eyes of blazing fire have so much meaning from the 100% presence of God to the all-seeing judge who searches our hearts and minds and judges each without partiality. He is the righteous judge. Nothing escapes the fire and nothing will escape his judgment. Verse 15 says that he is, that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like rushing waters. His feet represent the judgment that is coming on all the enemies of God. They will be trampled under his feet. There are numerous verses that talk about God putting all his enemies under the feet of Jesus. His voice, sounding like rushing waters, depicts his immense authority and power and the power of his word. So understand this, that, you know, this judgment and, you know, punishment, so to speak, this coming is coming against those who are enemies of God, not the believers, not the ones who trust and put their faith in him. So for us, there's only hope to be found here. Now, verse 16, in his right hand, <clears throat> in his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double edged sword. Now, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. The seven stars are referred to later, which we'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and tell you now, as the seven angels or messengers. Not angels as in the celestial beings, but as in the messengers or pastors, um, bishops, whatever title you want to give them, the leaders of the church, you know, 
that's who they're referring to. And they are in his right hand to signify that they are under his protection and that he will uphold them. You know, then the sharp double-edged sword is the word of God. That is, you know, that is why it comes from his mouth. Jesus will wage war with his words. He will slay his enemies with his words. And we know, according to scripture, that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The image of a two-edged sword coming out of, the, out of his mouth shows that he is coming in power and with all authority, and with his words he will destroy the enemies of God. Then it speaks of his face shining like the sun in all its brilliance. This is the countenance of, of God that the great blessing or Aaron, uh, blessing of Aaron um, that you you hear about. Okay, so when you hear about the Aaronic benediction, the the blessing that God gave to Moses that um, we refer to as the Aaronic benediction it was used to bless the people. In this blessing uh, given to Moses by God himself, he says, may he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you of course, and give you his peace. So that is the glory and favor of God shining upon you. When God turns his face towards you, that's his his glory and favor shining upon you. You When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, people could hardly look at him because he had been in the glorious presence of God and his face shone with a brilliance that that was probably uh, incredible to see. This part of verse 16 shows Jesus and all of his glory. In heaven, there is no need of a sun to give light because the glory of God will be the light. His appearance will be one of splendor and majesty. Scripture states that God's glory will shine through the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, "Let, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. John goes on to say that when he saw them, he did what uh, we will all do when we see him. He fell face down in humility and complete submission to the King of Kings, the author and finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end. This is a good depiction of how we will likely respond when we see him. And Jesus responds in true Jesus fashion. After seeing this description of this mighty, all-powerful Jesus that is coming as the righteous judge and will put all the enemies under his feet, you now see the gentle heart of the Savior towards those who follow him. He reaches down and touches John with his right hand and comforts him, letting John know that he doesn't need to be afraid. He has him in his hands. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus comforts John by reminding him that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And he holds the keys to death and hell. He is the all-powerful one. He upholds him and will care for him. 
What an awesome image of a powerful and righteous judge who is still gentle and caring at the same time. I don't want uh, anyone to be on the receiving end of his judgment as an enemy of God. That would be terrifying. But I am grateful that as a believer, we get to see the gentle, caring protector and savior that you know John sees here um, in this moment. And he finishes up chapter one with Jesus telling him, you know, to write what he has seen, what is now and what will come. Chapter one shows us what was seen part. Uh, what, what it, That's the what was seen part, should I say. Chapter two through three will show us the what is now part. And the rest of the chapters will be on the what is to come part. Finally, we know that the seven stars are. Um, are the seven messengers or ministers of the seven churches mentioned earlier. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands would have uh, been menorahs. Um, That's the seven-branch lampstand that was used to light the temples. This is fairly uh, straightforward. There are definitely some other deeper rabbit holes we can go down with all of the symbolism. But simply put, uh, lamps were intended to illuminate or light the way. These seven churches were intended to be uh, a lamp and light the way, to shine a light on the Word of God and be a light that shines in the darkness. They are the lampstands that will carry uh, the light of God's Word, especially as it pertains to this book and this prophecy. So, I mean, like, wow, guys. All I can say is wow. I mean, that is that's the end of chapter 1. And I feel like I had to keep myself from going down several rabbit holes. But it is so awesome to see the complete unity of the Word of God, to read Scripture that was recorded hundreds or even thousands of years apart and have them be so in sync is incredible. I wanted to take my time with the description of Jesus in this first chapter because it is powerful and humbling and truly breathtaking. All I can say is, wow, what a mighty God we serve. And I am glad that he is my savior, my shield and fortress, my vindicator, my mediator, my redeemer, my eternal hope. God, thank you so much. And I truly don't know what else to say. So I will not take anything away from from that with more words. All I can say is thank you. Amen.